Hello, this is Sasha Dovshek. I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Bergbeck School of Arts. I would like to present a podcast we created for the Bergbeck Arts Week event, a screening of Askold Kurov's documentary The Trial, The State of Russia Against Oleksensov, followed by a panel discussion. A bit of a context here. Oleksensov is a Ukrainian film director, writer and activist. In 2014, he was arrested by the Russian FSB forces in the recently occupied Crimea. Askold Kurov's film documents this show trial, exposing its contrived political nature. It was premiered at the Berlinale Film Festival in 2017 and has since been screened at numerous film festivals all over the world. However, it is not for the cinematic merits of the film that we watch it today, but rather the story behind it. Five years since his arrest, Sinsov is serving his 20-year sentence in the Russian prison colony Labutnangi. It is situated behind the Polish Circle, thousands of miles away from his native Crimea. Last year in May, Sinsov declared a hunger strike. Not asking for his own release, he demanded freedom for all political prisoners from Ukraine and occupied Crimea, held as hostages by Russia in its ongoing war against Ukraine. The hunger strike lasted for 145 days. It succeeded in drawing attention to the case, but not in releasing Kremlin's hostages. Today, Sinsov is one of 98 Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars in jail in Russia and Crimea on fabricated charges. Our panel aimed to situate Sinsov's case within the broader context of political persecutions in the region, dissident practices and models of resistance, in present as well as in the past. Our first speaker is Olesya Hromychuk. She is a teaching fellow in modern European history at King's College. Her research interests include gender and political violence, the Second World War, history of Ukraine and East Central Europe. Olesya is also a playwright and director of the amateur theatre group Molody Theatre London. The second speaker is Rory Finning. He is a senior lecturer and the founder of Cambridge Ukrainian Studies Centre. His research is primarily focused on the interplay of literature and national identity in Ukraine, as well as Crimean Tatar literature, human rights discourse, and cultural memory in the region of the Black Sea. The third speaker is Josephine von Zitzewitz, a temporary lecturer in Russian at Cambridge, working on the cultures of Samistat, prison writing, and underground networks in the late Soviet Union. Our fourth speaker is Molly Flynn, a lecturer in theatre and performance here at Bergbeck. With William Blacker, the translator of Sinsov's short stories to English, she recently co-organized the symposium depicting Donbass, which focused on critical and creative responses to the ongoing war in the east of Ukraine. Here is our discussion. I hope you find it interesting. Thank you. me to the screening. This is the third time I'm watching the film. I thought it would get easier, it doesn't. It's just each time it's absolutely devastating. I don't know, it's really, really hard to kind of relive that um, um, that story every time you watch it. Um, and, and it's impossible for me to watch it as a film. I watch it as a human story, so it's, um, yeah, it's pretty tough. Thanks for organizing it. Um, I'm a historian, so I deal a lot with myth-making. Uh, and sometimes history writing and myth making is quite difficult and sometimes impossible to separate, uh, which doesn't make our job easy. But um, 
myths are based on symbols, on icons, and icons are based on real people. And I think we can say with certainty that Sinsop has definitely become um, a symbol, an icon, uh, over the last five years. Um, and that's the kind of thing I wanted to talk a little bit about today. Um, first of all, because when he was on hunger strike, I felt that all the attention was drawn to him uh, as a symbol uh, and very little to, to Sinsov as a man. And since he finished his, strike, uh, his hunger strike, um, I feel like even the attention to him, to Sinsov as a symbol has faded, faded away, let alone uh, attention to him as, as a person, as a human being. Um, he, we don't really hear much about him anymore, uh, even in Ukraine, not to mention um, in the West. Um, his name started to be mentioned again uh, on the fifth anniversary of his uh, arrest, um, not so long ago, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but other than that, we sort of, we're sort of losing sight of him, really. Um, but we can nevertheless, I think, would all agree that he has a very firm place in Ukrainian and not just Ukrainian history, both as a symbol and, 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 and as a historical figure. So if we think about the symbol, what is it a symbol of? So I, I sort of thought of four, maybe five different things, that, that, the kind of categories that were useful for me. First of all, he's a new face of a prisoner, uh, a political prisoner in Russia. If you think about the, the, the kind of faces of political prisoners that we've, we knew before Sinsov, um, that was Pussy Riot probably before that, Khodorkovsky before that, or people like that. And before that, political prisoners, dissidents of the Soviet era, Gulag prisoners, etc. This is a new, a new face, really. Um, a new face of show trials, uh, which we saw today in the film, uh, which are done very much for our consumption abroad, as well as domestically in Russia at the expense of a human life, of course. Uh, he's also, while he's essentially a prisoner of war, he's a civilian, right? And he's a, he's a Russian-speaking, Crimean, Ukrainian patriot. Now, that's a combination we don't think about often. Um, and he gave a new understanding to Ukrainian citizenship, in my view. Um, he, you know, he, the Russian citizenship was enforced on him and, and as well as on all Crimean residents, but he maintains the fact that he's a Ukrainian citizen, and, and that's a really important point. Thirdly, um, he's a litmus test for Russian liberals, uh, especially those in the ads. I was sort of, for the last five years, watching, well, who is going to support the protests, who's not? And, and many did, which is remarkable, but many more did not. Uh, which is perhaps unsurprising, but still devastating, really. He's also a symbol of the, the arts community globally, and, and really the hope that people can come in solidarity to defend one the, of their own. Although the, the downside of that is that it seems like all of those efforts are futile, because it doesn't matter how strong the international pressure seems to be on directed of, of the of people of the arts directed towards Putin, nothing happens since so is still in jail five years on. But most importantly for me, I think, and perhaps slightly paradoxically, is that Sinsov as a symbol is also Sinsov as an ordinary person, right? He's a father and a son or and has a very complicated family life and we got a glimpse of that in the film. He's a writer who continues working from his cell, prison cell, um, as if he was a free man. 
So he's, I, you haven't mentioned yet, I think he's co-directing uh, a film based on one of the plays that he wrote, Namera, Numbers. Um, it's been, it's been directed, it's been uh, shot in Ukraine and he is co-directing via uh, um, Askolt Kurov the film, which is incredible. He's also writing another book. He's doing all sorts of things. Um, and when Oyan Blacker, I don't think he's here yet, uh, and I wrote to him, we wrote to him while he was still on hunger strike, uh, to tell him that we were raising awareness of his case through our theater, Multitheater, but also to ask some questions about the translation that Ruin was preparing at the time, English translation of the stories, again, the, the book you saw in the film, his short stories, uh, which is actually going to come out very, very soon in, in English translation, so keep an eye out uh, for that. Uh, here we received uh, replies from him. The replies were really difficult to read because they were handwritten, but also because they were scanned really badly. And I think that was done on purpose because mm. we, we wrote back and forth and I received three or four letters from him. And each one, oh my God, it was a torture to read. And I swear, I think it's because they do it on purpose, so just to add insult to injury. Um, but the replies really were, um, the, 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 those letters were sort of letters that you'd expect to read in an email from a witty, polite, uh, and very busy writer, yeah? who's just you know, getting on with his stuff, um, which was fascinating for me. But he's also a symbol of our times in which any of us really um, can find her or himself in sense of shoes um, by just being in the wrong place at the wrong time or just simply doing our jobs. And he's also the symbol of the time of our times in which he shows us that as an ordinary person, you can man maintain dignity um, and you can continue being humane in completely inhumane circumstances. And it's this sense of as a symbol, as an ordinary man who maintains this incredible dignity that I think is probably the most valuable for us here for us everywhere but for ukrainians in particular ukrainians who ha are trying to come to terms with losing their loved ones in eastern ukraine in the war those who are coming back from the war scarred for life those who, who are looking for their missing relatives who might never be found dead or alive um, those who are displaced with very very little hope or no hope to go back to their homes and of course about 100 um, prisoners, Ukrainian political prisoners, who are who are still held in Russia as as prisoners in the same conditions as Sintsov. So, like I said at the beginning, as a historian, I don't really like uh, myths uh, and symbols. But if Sintsov is symbolic of our capability as ordinary people to stay humane and to maintain our dignity, then I have nothing against that. Um, but that's that's the kind of sort of reflections that I could come up with. Thank you, thank you, Alessia, very much, and I will pass the word to Rory. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you very much, first of all, for um, organizing this event. Thanks to all of you for coming today. It's beautiful out there. There are a lot of temptations beyond this <laughs> yes. theater, so it's great that you're all here. Um, it's really nice to be here with uh, the, these terrific people uh, around me, and thanks to Alessia for starting us off so beautifully. I suppose what I would say um, at the start is. Um, in addition to this reflection on uh, Sensov as a symbol or an icon, there's also the cause he represents, which of course is not simply himself. In fact, there have been a number of times in which he's uh, reportedly been offered release um, 
and he's refused it because he's been advocating for the release of all political prisoners uh, in Russia. Um, and I feel it's important for us to talk a bit about that today um, because we might say generally there's a kind of um, crimnesia, uh, amnesia about Crimea that has really set in over these past five years. Uh, we see it in academic discourse, uh, media discourse, um, the idea that somehow the annexation is done and dusted, it's a thing of the past, um, that Crimea as a geopolitical concern has nothing to do with the war in Donbass, um, that r the Kremlin basically seized Ukrainian territory with no loose ends. Um, clearly the case of Oleg Sensov and um, Alexander Kolchenko and so many others uh, is um, rather tragic proof that this isn't the case at all. Um, there are over 100 uh, political prisoners in Russia, um, uh, Ukrainian citizens residents in, Ukraine, uh, in Crimea, most of them. Um, roughly uh, 56 Crimean Tatars uh, who are prisoners of conscience. Um, 24, as you, as you may remember from the sailors who were uh, taken near the Kerch Straits, 24 uh, Ukrainian sailors, and about 20 uh, political prisoners uh, like uh, Sensov. Um, so his case and his uh, message resonates more broadly than um, his own, his own uh, particular person uh, or his family. Um, and he's been very forthright, and as Wallace said before, um, I think uh, very noble in presenting the case and the, uh, the desire for the freedom of, of his compatriots in, in Russian prisons. Um, it's worth us asking, I think, and to revisit the idea of Crimea a little bit, why are these individuals in prison in the first place? I mean, outside of, let's say, uh, demonstrating power for power's sake, why um, are they incarcerated? Why so many of them? And I think it's worth us uh, reflecting a bit on um, a kind of tectonic perennial struggle over the very issue of possession of Crimea. Um, and I think one of the historical events that has made this very question or this issue um, so radioactive is the deportation of the Crimean Tatars by Stalin in 1944. Because really, this was a kind of violent spasm of um, territorial insecurity uh, on the part of Stalin. Um, the Crimean Tatars were deported uh, along with uh, numerous other indigenous peoples of Crimea, ethnic Germans, Bulgars, Greeks as well. And this was very much an attempt to settle this question of possession of the peninsula once and for all, but actually did the opposite. It exacerbated um, these, let's say, anxieties of possession of Crimea rather than exercising them. Um, and today, uh, the fact that we have, let's say, 56 Crimean Tatars um, in uh, Russian prisons um, is another instruction, I think, on the part of the Kremlin um, that, and I think uh, Kirill um, uh, Ragov, uh, the political scientist you see in the film, says this quite well, that it's a uh, kind of a symptom of an authoritarian regime to demonstrate, um, particularly through um, the incarceration uh, of well-known figures, to, to show its strength. Um, and this keeps going on, I think, unabated, uh, and has been now for quite some time. Just a few weeks ago, to give you some um, recent indication of how uh, constant this threat is, um, a number of uh, civic journalists associated with the Crimean Tatar movement, um, uh, the movement known as Crimean Solidarity, uh, were arrested in their homes, about 25, 26 of them. Um, and uh, in the same way that Oleg Sensov is, is accused of terrorist acts, they're all accused of Islamic extremism. Um, 
in the same way that um, uh, investigators seem to discover a grenade and a gun in Sensov's home three days after his initial arrest, um, uh, it's often the case that uh, issues of the Quran or books of the Quran are brought out as evidence of this extremism. Um, but the idea is to constantly keep those who do not see the annexation of Crimea legitimate in constant fear. Um, and it's really worth it for us to keep attention on uh, this problem, to reflect upon what Oleg Sentsov means when he says he wants all uh, political prisoners um, released before himself, um, and to really applaud um, scholars here and activists and all of you for just keeping attention um, on this issue. Uh, we need to keep showing solidarity and I particularly would like to say that the translations um, by William Blacker and all the work from Molotov Theater that Alessia uh, has been involved in is, is just one um, great sign of the kind of cultural work we can do as well uh, to keep the spotlight on him. So I suppose just to get started, that's what I'll say. Uh, but thanks again. Thank you, Rory. Um, yeah, just to emphasize that uh, people who are in prisons for political reasons, they uh, we need a constant spotlight on them because the day we forget about them, they can be tortured and anything further can be done to them. So yeah, please keep up this good work and Rory has some ideas about what we can do next, which we will discuss a bit further. Josephine. Okay, um, yes, thank you very much, um, Sasha, for inviting me here. So I'm not a specialist in contemporary Ukraine, I'm a specialist in the late Soviet Union and so I've been, I've been asked to draw a couple of parallels um, um, between the Sensov trial and actually what went on in the in the Soviet Union, we saw in the film one of the um, picketeers holding up a placard, um, "Russia um, um, welcome the new year 1937." Um, I'm not sure that looking at the Stalinist show trials that led to the mass execution of people and then the gulag filled with um, random prisoners who were often um, arrested also for the gulag had an economic function. I'm not sure that that parallel is the, the closest one, but perhaps we can look at the of years, we can look at the um, at, at what happened to the dissidents and the way in which um, Russia political prisoners exist in many here in many countries, but the way in which Russia puts away political opponents um, does indeed suggest many parallels um, between nowadays Russia and the Soviet Union. And um, so perhaps what we could do is um, start with the issue of publicity because we saw this film um, so we, we have a lot of footage actually from the trial and if we look at other political trials in Russia that have nothing to do with Ukraine which actually would be another angle that is interesting if we look at the the um, DLICT, the um, case of the um, network of young people from Penza and St. Petersburg, who have also been accused of terrorism. They have nothing to do with, with, um, with Ukraine, but they have also been accused of um, building a terrorist network. And I've just been on Facebook and um, a friend of mine is sitting, uh, yesterday actually, that was yesterday, not today, and um, was sitting in Petersburg in the court and translating life um, from the court on Facebook. So um, the, and that may be, and uh, as a human rights observer, as a human rights defendant, or somebody who might be um, in trouble for this as well, and that might be something where we can look at dissident trials, because publicity about, about political persecution is very firmly 
a, a matter of the 1960s. Um, we know that probably the first transcript of a trial at a time where it wasn't easy to get into a courtroom where the Soviet press might be writing about what is happening in court. So these cases were also show trials of Joseph Brodsky, of people like Andrei Sinyavsky and Yuli Daniel, but um, they were not open to, um, to observers. But in the case of Brodsky, it was a journalist. In the case of Daniel and, and Sinyavsky, were the wives of the defendants who actually compiled transcripts that were then, um, that were then circulated in Samizdat. In the case of Sinyavsky and Daniel, this actually sparked the first ever um, demonstration in 1965 on the day of the Soviet constitution of a couple of people. It was over in five minutes. And, but um, coming out with placards, observe the Soviet constitution and asking for a fair trial. So this idea of publicizing, of actually not allowing people to disappear, of making sure one knows where the prisoner has been sent to. You remember the Pussy Riot trials when Nadezhda Talakunikova all of a sudden disappeared for a couple of days because it wasn't sure um, where she had been sent to. Um, all these things um, do um, do matter, so that people actually do write about it, and um, and um, things come um, come out into the open. Um, the there are um, there are more parallels. I mean, um, interestingly, it, during the Soviet years, if you were Russian and ended up in a in a in, in a labor colony for um, for political reasons, it was probably aesthetic or political. If you were Ukrainian or indeed Lithuanian um, from the Baltic, from the other Baltic states, it may well have been for national feelings and sentiments. So there is a further parallel. Um, there was a in as late as 1985, a Ukrainian poet Vasil Stus died in the political camp. Um, poem 36, actually, um, as a consequence of a hunger strike. So um, that parallel seems to be there as well. But maybe also um, we should talk about the differences. It's very easy. The human mind is looking for patterns. And it's very easy to see, oh, this is template X, and this is template Y. And um, certainly an important thing is that in the late Soviet Union, political prisoners tended to be sent to special camps so to the camps in Mardovia, south of Moscow, or Perm 36. There were sp sp special camps for political prisoners. So in a sense, these camps facilitated um, the proliferation of networks of people supporting each other. Don't think this is the case now. Um, and of course, Sintsov and others in Russia and other Ukrainians have been accused of um, of um, of crimes that are actually not easily identifiable as political. So the articles that were wielded against the dissidents in the Soviet Union were anti-Soviet um, agitation and propaganda, or the uh, the um, attempt to somehow undermine the Soviet system. But terrorism, or another very um, popular at the moment article of the law, hate speech. Um, we all have these articles in our own criminal, in our own criminal codes, and this seems to be a very ingenious actual move 
because even if somebody gets acquitted, the the shadow of a doubt remains. Is there actually something real um, going on? It's much harder to pass this off as a political, as a political, um, a solely political trial, especially in the case of Sinsorf, where there was somebody who was doing something terrorist-related or um, um, subversive, and then tried to get Sinsorf in there. So that's maybe that is maybe. Um, Yes, um, my contribution, I think we should look at the Sensov trial, especially because he's imprisoned in Russia, um, in the context of what Russia is actually doing um, with other people who are political prisoners. And so the, the use of ter terrorism hate speech is one. Um, Dmitriev, um, um, Dmitriev, the director of Memorial in Karelia, who's been accused of child pornography, that is another very nasty um, thing so how to wreck, how to um, ruin the reputation of a human being. And as in, in contrast to actually what was going on um, in the late years of the Soviet Union, it seems that pressure or actions to support people don't impress the authorities in Russia very much. And also because the Cold War is over and the... the, the, the lines are blurred, um, it seems it is much harder to, um, to, to, to encourage people to show solidarity and it is not so clear what this solidarity should look like. Thank you. Thank you, Josephine. Um, just a remark about the extremism and terrorism charges. Um, in case of Sinsov, there is a team of people uh, all over the world trying to unpack and show and explain mm. why he cannot be accused in these deeds. But there are, as we have mentioned, other cases, particularly Crimean Tatars who happen to be Muslim, and it is very easy to um, apply a charge of terrorism to a Muslim minority in Crimea, and mm. um, there there is a suspicion uh, due to Islamophobia in the West that there might be actually something. Um, so I encourage you to follow Ukrainian uh, news activists, journalists who investigate these cases and help to unpack this very complex issue, uh, the overlap of national religious identity, and help to throw some light on these cases. Um, Molly, just to wrap up. Um. I'd also like to thank you, Sasha, for organizing this event today um, and bringing us together to talk about it. I'm afraid I find it very challenging to uh, respond to the film <laughs> and to the case in general. I also, today was the second time that I'd seen it, and I, um, yeah, it didn't, doesn't get easier. So I think maybe instead of a, a direct response, I'll just say a few words about my connection to the, um, to the topic. And, and maybe come back to Alessia's uh, point about the, sort of the mythology of, of Sensov now. Um, I'm working on a research project about a theater company, a Ukrainian theater company called Theater of Displaced People, that um, was founded in 2015 in direct response to the war. And uh, it, it's a company that works in this specific uh, genre of theater called documentary theater. 
And their approach to this work uh, is connected to a style of documentary theater performance which has developed in Russia over the last 20 years um, at this venue Teatro Dog, which was featured in the film. And um, uh, in fact, Askold Kurov uh, studied, he works both at Teatro Dog and, and studied filmmaking with the founder of that company. So this company, um, Theater of Displaced People, Teatro Pereselensa, was founded by a Ukrainian playwright, Natalia Berezhbit, who was a co-founder of Teatro Dog, uh, a German director, Gerig Genot, who was also a co-founder of Teatro Dog, and a military uh, psychologist, Alexei Karachinsky. And together, the three of them um, uh, developed about a dozen projects between 2015 and 2018 in which they worked with um, uh, soldiers, internally displaced people, artists, activists, and a lot of projects with teenagers, particularly teenagers uh, living close to, close to the front line. Uh, and in these projects, they invited people to come together and to tell their own stories um, uh, about their experience of the war and, and about their experiences in general, and in, in this way they um, sought to react to the propaganda that's disseminated on both sides of the front line and um, bring people together and create spaces in which people could, could be heard and could listen to one another. Um, one of those projects uh, is called Class Act, uh, and I, was, um, I have been lucky enough to participate in the project in 2017-2018. And uh, for this project, what they do is they bring a group of teenagers from a town in uh, eastern Ukraine, 10 teenagers from a town in eastern Ukraine, 10 teenagers from a town in western Ukraine. They all come to Kiev for two weeks. And they uh, take part in a series of playwriting workshops. And then they're paired together with people from the other town. And, they, and <coughs> the teenagers write 10-minute plays together. Um, and then the plays that they write are uh, performed in this huge gala performance by Ukraine's most famous actors and directors, and um, the students are there, and it's a really remarkable um, process to witness. It's often the case that they'll kind of come together at the beginning of those two weeks and say, like, yeah, okay, they get paired together with someone they don't know, right? And the teenagers will say, maybe, yeah, okay, um, I'll write a play with this person, but we're definitely not gonna be friends. <laughs> And then, of course, by the end of the two weeks, they're, you know, absolutely torn apart when they have to say goodbye, <laughs> and, and uh, romances emerge, and um, it's a really remarkable process to witness. Um, and in 2018, um, at the end of this huge performance, uh, in which the playwrights, the teenage playwrights are, you know, they're kind of they're the stars of the show. They're really, it's in their honor that all of these professional um, theater makers and TV actors and film directors come together, right, to, to honor the work that they've done together. Uh, so you can imagine there's a really incredible spirit of, um, of strength. And in 2018, um, uh, in the, at the curtain call, when everybody from the whole team comes up, all the actors, all the playwrights, all the staff, everybody together, and um, and the project manager held out to everyone um, sheets of paper that said Free Sensolv, and everybody on the stage held up these signs that said Free Sensolv. And there are, there were kids, I mean, I know there were teenagers there who are, who are, uh, 
who identify with the Russian side of this conflict. Uh, and they also held up these signs that said Free Sentsov. And I, I, I so appreciate the um, critical view that, that you have, Alessia, as a historian about mythology. And I've learned so much from you uh, in, in thinking about, thinking critically about, about the past and about the way we kind of create these narratives. But I have to say from my experience that in that moment, um, it, it was quite meaningful. And it seemed to me meaningful um, to, to everybody in that room, despite differing backgrounds and despite differing opinions about, um, about the war. Thank you so much for sharing this.